Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 AM. My name is Ruth Hagen-Gruber, coming from Germany, and happy to be here. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali, and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today we're going to hear an interview from Professor Jane Caputi, and she'll be speaking about Mary Daly, who she has worked very closely with. This is part two of a two-part interview. Right, Mary Daly was a staunch animal rights activist, ethical vegetarian, and had very a very close connection with non-human animals. Yes. You know, Mary was um, basically practiced an earth-based spirituality. I mean, those are words that Starhawk uses. Mary didn't use it so much. She was very much, what can we say, a worshiper of nature, you know, and seeing, of course, humans as part of nature, not as separate from and dominating nature. She was one of the original eco-feminist thinkers, and she was, right now in, our, in academic studies, certainly in the United States, there's something called animal studies. And, you know, suddenly everyone is recognizing that animals are not an inferior species and that animals have culture and that animals have language and that animals, you know, even generate... I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but that we can understand things about what Mary would call meta-patterning, the deeper patterns in the cosmos, by coming into relation with animals, not really just studying them as if they were objects. And Mary, of course, was really one of the first philosophers, not just to think of animal rights, like we must treat animals well and not, you know, turn them into slaves or, you know, abuse them in certain ways. But Mary really, like, and she did it in a playful way in her work, like having these conversations with her cats, etc., or observing a cow in Ireland or a hermit crab on the beach in Massachusetts. But she would suddenly be so taken with them and realize that these animals represented being and maybe another facet of being than human being represented. And she would seek that encounter with this other presence as a philosophical encounter and one that would yield great insight and knowledge. And so you'll find throughout her works these encounters with animals. And, you know, she took them very meaningfully. She was, for example, like many indigenous cultures, including indigenous Irish cultures, recognizing that the nature of the universe is really relationality, not domination, and that we should be attentive to all the voices, all the faces around us, and all the relations that are happening, and that it's our... It's really our obligation to the earth to establish those kind of relations. So Mary was a deep eco-feminist in that way. 
she made one one statement that always stayed with me and as she looked out her window and she saw the trees hugging and I thought that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody give trees a, a different status and it, it actually has changed the way that I, I look at plants because they often do hug, don't they? Oh, yeah. And they're speaking to us. They're, you know, they want our attention. They give us their attention. Absolutely. They're beings. There's a whole, you know, we are brought up, one of the things that being brought up in the patriarchy is your great Australian philosopher, Ralph Plumwood, talked about this more beautifully than almost anyone, in which the way that nature is backgrounded. So we think we're just on this stage set. Nature is just this kind of prop, right? Instead of that we're walking amidst beings. And that there's a whole culture going on. There's work. There's joy. There's love. There's suffering. I mean, and, there's, and that we're part of this ongoing conversation. And we're not necessarily the superior species here. There's this, you know, everything is going on. Everything is happening. And we walk around as if, you know, only human drama matters. Only humans matter. It's just, that's what Mary would call necrophilia, right? That's this kind of deadening of the world around us, refusal to see it, refusal to connect with life. Mm, definitely. And, and it, that's what allows domination and abuse, because you, have, you, know, you deeply make nature into this object. Mary never did that, no. No, even when I go out somewhere and I've, I haven't got my dogs with me, I remember how she'd speak about a casual familiar and how she'd see a dog or a cat sitting in the window and that would be her familiar for that period of time. No, when she wasn't with her, her permanent one that she lived with. Right. Oh, yeah, Mary would, like I said, have these encounters and she'd see them as deeply meaningful and really work them into the philosophy, like the cow in Ireland. What was the cow story in Ireland? But she encountered a cow... And it it said something to her about the journey of outer course. But, but I remember when we reflected on it, there are these... I mean, think back at the ancient cultures, the ancient non-patriarchal cultures, and how often the divinity was recognized as an animal, like a cow goddess, right? You know, Mary was... You know, uh, these other cultures knew something we didn't, about the divine is not human, right? Human is not period, everything, and then, of course, not only human, but male, and in heaven, not having anything to do with the earth, which is what allows the destruction and alienation from the earth. So, yeah, these, and, and all of us, you're right, you see trees differently now. Isn't great, isn't that the greatest gift, to, like, suddenly wake up out of this state of alienation and realize that everything around you is alive and conscious and interacting, and that you are interacting, too, you're part of it? Yeah, I think it's it's something that if somebody writes a book and it's it's such a powerful book that it can make you see the world differently. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what Mary was wonderful at. You'll never see the world again the same way. And that's what my students all thank me for. after But Mary had so much going on that was brilliant and refreshing and really genius. I mean, I know I've, I've encountered at least one genius in my life, and that was Mary Daly, and I am immeasurably changed and better for it. And students, when they read gynecology, they just are like, wow. Right? I mean, they really woke me up. Not everybody, but a very significant number of them. 
love it and are just thrilled by it and haven't ever encountered anybody who, you know, made their minds dance in that way with the words and the, the sort of incantation of her language and the, the journey into these other dimensions. You know, she talks about that. She says, I'm taking you on an intergalactic journey, an interdimensional journey to discover levels of reality that have been closed off to us by patriarchy. So, yeah, you're never the same again. And isn't that wonderful? She initiates you into another mode of being in another way of thinking. Well, I think that's the true meaning of philosophy, isn't it? That is to have that wonder about the world. And a lot of us lose that Mm -hmm. when we're quite young. But I think she was quite incredible because she managed to sustain that that enthusiastic about wonder of the world all her life. Absolutely right, as did one of her great, you know, one of her foremothers that she cherished, Rachel Carson, you know, author of Silence Spring, who wrote about the sense of wonder. Yes, you know, the founder of the American Environmental Movement, Rachel uh, Carson. Uh-huh. Um, Mary Daly's last book was Amazon Grace, Recalling the Courage to Sin Big. And yeah. I think I think Mary managed quite brilliantly to combine fiction and non-fiction within this book. Absolutely, she did. She invented Lost and Found Continent. And, uh, you know, as this place in the future that somehow the Earth, you know, really sort of just rid itself of patriarchy. And, and Lost and Found Continent was sort of something like Atlantis that rose again out of the ocean. And uh, women that basically created... Um, a women's culture on Lost and Found Continent. And some of the young women in this future time conjured Mary Daly from the past to come to them. I mean, it was a great imaginative idea, right? And had these kinds of conversations going back and forth. And she'd interspersed the story of her visits to Lost and Found Continent with philosophy as also really... And, you know, you said something that I think in your email that other, other people have told me that you know, they didn't grow up reading her earlier works. They were they were younger, they were never exposed to them, but they picked up Amazon Grace first, and it does give you an idea of what Mary Daly is about, and she even quotes herself somewhat from her earlier books, so it's a nice entry into some of her books, her earlier works. Yes, one thing she said in Amazon Grace was she had a woman philosopher coming back from the from the past, and she was in... Yes, and she was in Mary's lounge room, and she said, what is that awful racket? And Mary said, well, it's a television. And she was absolutely horrified by this. And I I think think a lot of us, we're just so desensitized to it, aren't we? We are so desensitized. I know, Mary never watched television. I mean, she'd put the news on for five minutes sometimes or watch a particular animal program. But, you know, she did not watch television. She could never understand that I studied popular culture, so I watched television and, and other things. I mean, but she did say, you know, that was a good way to get into the academy. You know, it was a way for me to sort of make a career. It wasn't real to her in the way that, uh, you know, living beings, things that humans cannot and did not and cannot make. You know, like a tree or a river. You know. Yes. Um, that's real, and television wasn't quite that real. 
and to live only immersed in that sort of simulation of reality she would call the elementary world was really damaging to one's spirit. So she didn't do it. And I think even when you've read one of Mary Daly's books, that's certainly not the end of the journey because she references so many other books within her book that you you actually really never finish reading what she's written because you have to sort of, it's like the, the branches of a tree. You have to go off and, and get all these other publications and read them. And one that she mentioned when we were um, speaking about television was the four reasons for the elimination of television, which oh, I have. Oh, Jerry Nander. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was very impressed with that book. And, mm. yeah, just basically about how it does, it really, you know how we've been talking about reading Mary Daly sort of reconfigures or takes your mind into other dimensions and really grows and nourishes your spirit? Well, gerrymander's point, among others, is that television actually shrinks your being. And uh, Mary was very much along with that. I mean, I kind of like television because I love having people tell me stories. And TV can tell some pretty good, you know, can feature shows that tell some pretty good stories. So I don't think you should sit and, like, watch it nonstop, but I have to admit, I love a good story. Mm, I like the documentaries. They're actually educational mm-hmm. and and independent news. So that that's about that's about my limit <laughs> to yeah. television. Well, I like, you know... One of the big areas that I worked with the Marian gynecology was on myths because I know a lot about myths and I knew all the myths. I read myths from the time I was a child, and uh, and recovering all those myths. I mean, myths are stories, and you know, I, I do think, and a lot of my work is on how popular culture continues to transmit the myths. And if you come to it with this kind of deepened awareness, that you can really get back in touch with the energy of the myth. Not all the time, and sometimes you have to be doing a lot of deconstructing, too. But there is something, as long as you go outside most of the time, <laughs> you're not just sitting around. But like I said, I think, I think stories are important, the oral tradition, including how it's carried through in popular culture. Yeah, definitely. So what are your fondest memories of Mary? Um, working together... You know, and Mary was difficult. I'm sure if you talk to a lot of people, they'll tell you, oh, my God, she was impossible. You know, she was quite, she was always engaged in a battle with Boston College and others, right? She had just so, she was so lit up with her passion for getting her work done and everything that nothing else mattered, really. So that was the, the primary thing, and all of us were supposed to focus on that, who were, you know, in her sphere or working with her at a particular time. So she can be a little difficult, but also I had never had so much fun in my life as I had with her when we would be working together. And the ecstasy of encountering new ideas or coming to them together or watching her when a new word or an idea occurred to her, it, she was very, very, very funny. We would laugh uproariously. You know, you just, you know how sometimes they help people so-and-so was so alive. Well, when Mary was writing, she was, you know, just as as high a wattage as you can imagine of, like, the radiance of being. And to be in her presence during those times was just, you know, ecstatic. 
And I think it communicated this kind of the potency of creativity and the desire for creativity, the desire to be creative. You know, she really communicated that to everybody. Nobody left her presence without deepening and experiencing their own creativity as well. So what a gift that was. Well, she certainly was very dedicated to her study, but uh, it seems like she was she had a great sense of humour and she took time out to relax as well. I remember reading about how when you were writing the book, uh, you were fairly close to a, a swimming hole and you used to go and have a swim before you started work. Oh, all the time, yes. She actually lived in an apartment building that was right on a lake that you could go, just walk out the door and go swimming. So we were swimming all the time. We just, you know, we would always take a break to sit under the trees and spread out a little red plaid kind of blanket and sit there under the trees just to have that refreshment of being outside and being in the air with the trees and the birds and all the creatures. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So is there any particular incidents that you have fond memories about? Well... Uh, yes. We kept a little Wikidary journal when we were doing the Wikidary, and we would write, particularly when there was an encounter with a particular animal, or there was some kind of, in her talks about synchronicity, that's when all these events are taking place that have this uncanny resonance among them. So when we finished the Wikidary, we had turned, and you know, this was before computers, so we had actually hired a typist who typed it all up, from our note cards in some ways. We had a little index cards with each word on it. And then the, the drafts of all the essays that Mary had typed out. And so the typist put it all together and we delivered it to the publisher. And we went out for a drink and some dessert. And uh, prices were much less at that time. And I remember we went and we had our little festive celebration. And then when we got the bill... And we each had a drink and dessert. The bill was thirteen thirteen, <laughs> <laughs> and in the Wikidary, you know, yeah, you're laughing because the whole the way the Wikidary ends. We had been trying, you know, there's this whole thing about the clock and the, the number twelve that was the clock, and you know, we were this was a time of high tension with the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union, and the the, the clock. If it goes to midnight, it means we're in the verge of nuclear war. Anyway, and so we had decided that with the face of the Gorgon, who had a face like a clock, and you had to step off the clock, you had to leave the realm of 12 and go into 13, and that was the last part of the Wickedary. And then we went out and we had that, and you feel like every now and then the universe is sending you a little sign, and we felt like that was it, and it was really quite fun. I think we took the receipt and we pasted it into um, the Wickedary Journal, which I imagine is in the archives at Smith College right now. I don't really know. It was in her apartment, and I think all of her papers went to Smith College. So I imagine that's where it is. Oh, that, that's good. So they're all, they're all safe. I hope so, yes. I have not gone up there and personally investigated, but I assume they are. Yes, I know she spoke about another another sort of sketch that a friend did for her, and she said that, when she actually went to hear Mary speak, everybody was attacking her and they were like a a pack of hyenas snapping at her heels and she actually did a sketch of of Mary standing there speaking and all the the hyenas (laughs) who were snapping at her heels. I mean, I remember Emily Culpepper did a sketch of hers, of Mary, when she was 
giving a lecture at Harvard, because Emily could sketch as well, and there was energy coming out of Mary that Emily saw. Emily would see, and I, if I'm remembering it correctly. And look, I think that you always get a, a really good insight into someone's personality by the environment that they live in. Could you give a description of Mary Daly's apartment? Yeah. Okay, Mary lived in a two-bedroom apartment that was, again, on this lake. It was a small place, but every corner, of course, was filled with books. But also, whenever anybody came to visit Mary, and lots of people came to meet with her, to tell her how much she influenced them, to bring her a copy of their book, but people always were bringing Mary gifts, and especially gifts or sending them to her in the mail, inspired by some of her writings. So there was a, a beautiful kind of sculpture, a statue of a cow, based on the cow and outer course. There were spiders. I remember when Starhawk came to visit, she brought her a, an embroidery that Starhawk had made of the four elements. There were posters from all the different places around the world that Mary had spoken, advertising her talk. There was always a candle lit. Mary always had a candle lit, honoring spirit, inviting spirit. And it was just, it was a sacred space. What can I say? There was magic there. Mm. And, and of course, she always had a, had a cat. <laughs> oh, yes, there was always a cat. There were many cats. Wildcat was the cat, was the original cat, who had a sister, Wild Eyes. But Wildcat was there during the gynecology, and pure lust. And then there was Oleog, who was, who was there during quintessence, and then Kavi. Those were the three that I know. Professor Jane Caputi speaking about Mary Daly. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given lots of food for thought.